Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Emily Lockhart writes a lot, and for readers of all ages, she's the author of children's picture books, young adult novels, and adult fiction. Emily is the author of We Were Liars, a number one New York Times bestseller and winner of the Goodreads Choice Award, and was also Amazon's number one young adult novel of 2014. Other titles include The Disreputable History of Frankie Landau Banks, a Prince Award Honor Book and National Book Award finalist, Genuine Fraud, a Times bestseller and LA Times Book Prize finalist. Whistle, a new Gotham City hero, Emily's latest work, is a graphic novel about a Jewish teenage activist who gets superpowers and infiltrates the city's criminal underworld. Emily has a doctorate in literature from Columbia University. Her field, 19th century British novel. In 2013, she chaired the Committee on Young People's Literature for the National Book Awards. So it's time to meet and get to know this literary force of nature. Emily, welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Thank you for having me. Emily, I like to begin, especially with writers, by making this confession. I find writing so contrived. And when I sit down in front of a computer, even even if it's an email, I'm sort of struggling with how I want to say it and say it the right way. And so I'm so envious of people who do this for a living. Explain to me and tell me how that happened in your life. Well, I had the good fortune of being in a family where a lot of people worked in the arts. So my father in particular is a playwright and um, he had productions going up and I used to sit in the back of theaters on my summer break and watch rehearsals. And this was a really amazing training ground um, for somebody who wants to be a writer or a creative person of any kind, because you would see, you know, actors rehearsing for the first time. Then later on, you would see, uh, you know, maybe a rewritten version of that same text and see the ways that, you know, the changes the writer had made affected the performances. Then, you know, later on, you'd see lights, staging, costumes, choreography, music, and all the ways that a show transforms as these different layers are added on. Mm-hmm. So it was like a nonstop masterclass in, you know, revision and pacing and understanding how to get a joke to land or an emotional moment to land. So um, that was just a, a really lovely way to grow up. But watching that and being a part of that process, it a sense, doesn't necessarily mean one is going to be a writer. This was something that was bigger than you as you were growing up? Well, I think I wanted to write. I wrote a lot as a kid. I was one of those people who was always filling up notebooks with stories and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. ideas. But when I was in graduate school, I had very discouraging experiences writing in college. My college writing teacher was incredibly dismissive and condescending to me. And I basically got the message that I was no good at this. And I think I honestly was basically no good at it. Um, Was this fiction writing? Yeah, fiction uh, writing. Okay. And Mm -hmm. um, so it's not like I had any like inborn natural ability. I, but I did have a 
very serious and longstanding interest in storytelling and trying to learn how to be good at it. Mm-hmm. So while I was in graduate school, I sort of set my mind on, I didn't study fiction writing. I studied, you know, uh, British literature, but I was unhappy in grad school. I didn't want to become a professor. So I set myself to learn how to write first more commercial type nonfiction and then, and then fiction writing. And I just, I read books about it. I didn't take classes. I read books about it. And I also like took apart um, novels that I admired. So I would take a Dickens novel or, or somebody more contemporary. I know I I took apart Geek Love Mm -hmm. and you know, just like, what are they doing? How are they introducing characters? How are they setting up tension? How are they creating plots? Took apart a bunch of John Irving novels as well. And you did that on your own? Well, I've had ambitions, but yes. No, no, no. But I mean, (laughs) when you were saying that you weren't necessarily getting that kind of encouragement from some of your professors. It was not within an academic setting. I was just doing it. You knew you had something to say. You know, I just wanted to say something. I don't think I knew what I had to say. I think, you know, it's probably the same way with with talking on the radio, right? You don't always know exactly what you're saying until you're actually in the act of articulating something. And then your thoughts become clear in that process of articulation. And I think that's true for a lot of writers, right? You start writing and then you find out what it is you might have to say. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting that you said to me initially, you started writing nonfiction. Well, I wrote a dissertation on, you know, late 19th century uh, British book illustration and reading practices. Mm -hmm. Uh, And while I was escaping from doing that, I wrote a a book of essays, basically. And then I wrote for magazines for a while. Um, And I was a terrible magazine writer because I never wanted to, like, write to the house style. And I never wanted to, like, do it the (laughs) way they wanted and make it the length that they wanted. And I, I was always pitching ideas that were not right for the magazine at all. I just, I had no, anyway, I had no game um, on that front and it wasn't Uh a good fit, but I did a lot of, I did a lot of that for a while. I wrote for Salon and I wrote for Feed back in the day and I wrote some stuff for Nerve and um, also regular print magazines, Wired and Glamour Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But how great is that, that when you kind of hit your own stride that you could do basically whatever the fuck you wanted to? Yeah, that's really lovely. And, and fiction writing, you know, you have no obligation to, you know, any kind of veracity or accuracy whatsoever, really. I mean, you're making up your own world and you don't want to misrepresent history or groups of human beings, but you can also have a note at the end saying, you know, this is a composite uh, landscape made up of bits and pieces of Boston and Seattle. You can go wherever you need to go, really. In fiction. So when you started to hit your stride or when that started to become a part of your life, did it flow out of you? Was it just such a natural act that in a sense it was bigger than you? No. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a lovely fantasy that, that is probably true for some people. But, you know, there was this idea that like I had that like people would say, oh, well, you know, you, you know, be a writer only if you have to write in order to live, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Or be a writer, you know, or there's this idea that you, you know, you're in a, in a, you know, Charlotte Bronte used to, you know, write with her eyes closed in like a sort of a semi-trance. Various French people were like up in garrets in the 19th century, starving and drinking absinthe and like writing things. That is not my experience. And uh, that doesn't mean I'm not a writer, right? Uh, So no, it's pedestrian. I sat down, I tried to make something every day. 
I try, you know, sometimes it flows, sometimes it doesn't flow. I try to make something anyway, even though it doesn't always flow. I've gotten better at it. I'm more facile, I'm more fluid, but some parts of it are still hard. No, I don't think I'm a natural. I think I'm a person who's learned a craft. Was it difficult to get your first work published as an author, not as a magazine writer? I think my first book, which was a middle grade, like for eight to 12-year-old readers that I co-authored, came out in 96. It's a long and boring story, Sandy. And Let just me involving. be the judge of that, Emily. Okay. Well, I had written a nonfiction proposal and I had gotten an agent and they, I got the agent through this friend of mine who had written a memoir and she got incredibly famous and therefore was able to help me get an agent. And that was just a weird fluke that I knew this woman and she was very generous and helpful. And then then the agent couldn't sell the project, but I had written this other thing. And and I had basically forgotten about this other thing because the agent said, I'll sell it. But then she didn't sell it and she never told me anything about it. And then like nine months later, there was a message on my like old fashioned, old school answering machine that you pushed a button, you know, when you came home. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the tape would go. And it said that there was an offer on this book. And I ended up doing six books with that editor you know, over the years. And um, she was a wonderful influence on my career, an editor named Donna Bray, who has an imprint at uh, at Harper. And uh, she was elsewhere at the time, but And you she's think a wonderful that's editor. boring what you're telling me? Uh, well, really? it was just, it was, I don't know, just like, you know, it was complicated. And then I broke up with that agent and then I had another agent and then I couldn't sell my next thing. And I haven't even told it in order because there was a picture book that I sold somewhere in the middle there that I just that got picked out of the slush pile. I would send picture books out every now and then. And I sent a picture book to this editor who had once written an encouraging note back, you know, saying, if you write something totally different, that's better. I would maybe look at it again. And uh-huh, I sent okay. this picture book to her. Uh Actually, no, I sent a letter. I sent a letter that said, I have written a picture book called Five Creatures. Would you like to see it? And literally the whole picture book is maybe, maybe 300 words. It's the shortest thing you ever saw. But I didn't send the book. I just said, would you like to see the book? And then six months later, (laughs) I got a letter back in the mail that said, yes, I would like to see the book. book. So I printed the book out and I mailed it off in a manila envelope and Nine months after that, she bought it. There's something I got to pick up on. You wrote a picture book, so you drew the pictures. No, no, no. As well? No, 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 no. All right, maybe Uh -uh. so I'm getting a little close to defying you a little bit, aren't I, Emily? (laughs) No, no, I draw no pictures whatsoever. You've seen my graphic novel. I didn't draw those pictures. I just assumed you were the illustrator. Yes. Well, that is a very common assumption. And many, many illustrators do write as well. Um, But a lot of picture books are collaborations between artist and writer. Early on, how were you able to make a living? I taught English. I taught at Columbia and at NYU. Your picture book, that really kind of solidified it for you and you knew you were on the right path? No. No, you have such a rosy picture. You know, I was an adjunct teacher. I was teaching at three different places or three different, usually I taught three classes running all over the city. Then I was also teaching like exercise classes because that paid better than teaching college English and uh, writing for magazines. I was just like hustling around, you know, with my head spinning. And I think that really, you know, I was publishing and, but most things were not especially successful. And I started publishing for young adults. 
I think my first book for young adults, which is called The Boyfriend List, came out in 2005. And that was where I started to feel like I'd found a little more direction. I uh-huh. think writing for that teenage audience is a real sweet spot for me. What, what attracted you to that? Sandy, I think it goes back to what you were saying, which is that writing for teenagers, and this is true, writing for children, younger children, maybe to a, a lesser extent, a lot of, of books that are written for teenagers, at least, or the kinds that I was, you know, are in first person. And it's very often, you know, if not a vernacular, it's just a very chatty first person. It's not necessarily grammatical. Mm-hmm. This all stems from, you know, Salinger and mm. and also maybe from uh, Clockwork Orange and books like that that were published in, uh, well, don't quote me, but in the you know late 50s and, and mid 60s, these books where it was replicating speech, you know, which comes out of modernism and postmodernism. And, but, you know, trying to get on the page, something like the way I'm talking now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, if you're going to write first person teenager, it's going to sound like that. It's going to be casual. It's going to have to be filled with like fun slang. It's not always going to be grammatical. It's going to have tangents. It's going to be messy. It's going to be and so t- to me, that there was a great freedom in allowing myself to write in that kind of first person voice. And I really loved doing it. My first couple books for teenagers also had footnotes. So there's all this like very goofy showing off footnote annotation of everything. So you can have like a scene where a girl is talking to a, you know, a boy that she likes, but you can see in the footnotes, all the things that she's thinking that she's Uh really saying, Uh you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it was very playful. It was a very playful space. um, And that I really, really enjoyed. And I felt like it loosened me up. And then the community of young adult readers and writers and, and advocates is a really great community that I have been very lucky to be a part of. It's a very progressive and forward-thinking community. There are issues around which people come together that are important issues for the population that reads these books. So I mean like literacy and sex education and um, censorship. Most of the books that are banned and censored in this country are books for teenagers and young adults and children. Wow. Um, that's the content that people want to restrict, right? Yes, and, the, yes. and, the, and the populations that they want to control. So there's all kinds of issues around which people can come together, do things that are good. You know, you can go into schools and get people excited about books. And you're not just, I mean, you're, you are selling books, but you're not just selling books. You're also connecting students to literature. And that is a, you know, a lovely part of my job. Your fiction notwithstanding, how much was, and I'm using the term in quotes, autobiographical? Oh, none of it. I just make stuff up. Uh-huh. I mean, you're always writing from your own experience in that you're trying to write um, truthfully about like human emotions and things right. that go on between people. But my life is nowhere near exciting enough to you know, dramatize. <laughs> what about We Were Liars that I referenced in the beginning of the introduction that has tremendous street cred here? A New York Times bestseller <laughs> and, you know, a Choice Awards and Amazon's yeah, number I'm super, one. I mean, I'm super famous on TikTok right now. That's not small potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I myself am not on TikTok, but amazing creators, most of whom are young, female identified creators um, have been making videos about that book. And that is the reason that it's currently popular. 
Why does it resonate so much? I think it resonates because it's a novel that, well, it's, it's a very dramatic situation. It's an amnesia plot. It's a thriller. Um, it has a big plot twist, but I think it's also hopefully a very emotional book. And I really tried to respect and render intense family dynamics and romantic problems and grief and other kind of important human experiences as as truthfully as I could in like mm-hmm. a in in the context of a you know a, of a, a story of a yeah of a thriller and so um, most of the TikTok videos are of people crying that must just blow you away it's really lovely I'm grateful to all those weepy people <laughs> when else in the history of time has an author gotten to see somebody react to their book like maybe they see something that they you know, a review that was written or something like that, but right. an actual like right. live reaction to a, to a story that I wrote yeah, seven or eight years ago. Yeah. It's, it's such a gift. And considering that the book wasn't written 10 minutes ago, that's even more empowering. It's lovely. It's lovely. I mean, it's a fluke of the internet as well. You know, it's not going to go on forever, but it's, it's been a nice moment. Is this a sexist comment on my part? Our young adult readers tend to be mostly female? I don't think it's a sexist comment. I I have no idea what the numbers are, but obviously we have pretty much equal numbers of female and male identified teenagers. Mm -hmm. And popular books, even with, you know, female protagonists are read by both and all genders. Um, Hunger Games is a great example, right? Right. But uh, I do think there's, at least for my books, based on who's showing up when I do events, uh-huh. Um, I am seeing, you know, more, more girls and women than I am others. Um, but that's also maybe who, who comes out to events. Just you in know, general. As opposed to, yeah, as opposed to who, who is actually reading. You know, you can't really measure who's reading, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah, I don't think you can. Do the ideas and the plots just flow out of you? Because your work is ubiquitous. You have a lot of titles to your name. You keep thinking things flow out of me, my friend, but they don't. It's very hard. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about the graphic novel a little bit, so I'll, I'll tell you about the origin of that. Okay. So the graphic novel is called Whistle, A New Gotham City Hero, and it is a superhero comic, basically, right, in book form. It's an origin story. And Whistle is the first DC Comics Jewish superhero to launch as Jewish, you know, originating as a Jewish character since 19, since 1977. A Jewish superhero. I can't wrap my head around. <laughs> well, you know, there's a huge long history of, of, um, of Jewish creators in comics. Almost all the big giant famous comics, uh, were created by Jewish creators, um, mm-hmm. Spider-Man, Batman, uh, Superman. And a lot of them can be read and decoded as Jewish narratives in one way or another. And there's been a lot of scholarship on that. It's really interesting. And I'm, I'm only just partway 
through reading because there's so much to read up about it. This character is a teenager in a neighborhood of Gotham City. Gotham City is where Batman lives, right? So Batman is like the superhero of Gotham and it's riddled with terrible supervillains who do terrible, terrible things. It's famous supervillains like the Joker and Poison Ivy and, you know, those kinds of people. So anyway, this is a little neighborhood of Gotham City. It's called Downriver and I invented it. And it's basically like New York City's Lower East Side was in the 80s, which okay. is to say very a historically, mm-hmm. a historic, a very dense, but also historically Jewish neighborhood. Oh, right? yeah. The Lower East Side was populated by all these Jewish immigrants from all different parts of mostly Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe, exactly. But mm-hmm. elsewhere too, um, mm-hmm. coming in through the turn of the 19th to 20th century right. and beyond. And so at one point there were 500 synagogues in the Lower East Side. Seriously? Little, yes. Because people would come and, and set up a synagogue for the people from their village. Like yeah. the same people who'd been like on the, on the ship with them. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so this is all very interesting, but you know, you can't get into that in the space of a, of a, of a superhero graphic. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, but the neighborhood is this historically Jewish neighborhood with historically Jewish businesses and community, but also all kinds of other people who have come into the community over the many years. So it's actually very mixed. Um, and it's run down and City Hall isn't paying attention to it. So the hero, the hero of the story is this, you know, teenage activist who's trying to get some change to happen in her neighborhood and in her community. And she ends up, long story short, developing amazing superpowers and having a mind meld with an awesome Great Dane whose name is Leibowitz. And she and Leibowitz basically become a superhero team together and do battle against the forces of evil in Gotham City. I was at a conference for librarians who are interested in popular culture. So it was young adult fiction and also comics and other kinds of media video games and so on that librarians might be connecting their patrons to, you know, in maker centers or in game nights or, you know, all the different things that they might do to bring that younger audience into the um, library community. So it was a really fun conference to be at. And the people from DC Comics were there. And I did this. This is like, sometimes my job is so amazing. So for work, I had to go and be on a panel in front of all of these librarians but it was like a game show and there was a guy in Obi-Wan Kenobi robes and he had invented like all of these trivia questions. And it was me and several other young adult authors. And we had to do like this trivia competition for the entertainment of the librarians, all of whom knew way more trivia yeah, than yeah. any of us. Right. Yeah. So they were, so we had, we got to call on them when we didn't know. And I was terrible and I lost. And it was all kind of hilarious and a little embarrassing. And just one of those things where I was like, I cannot believe that this is my job. I have a really good job. And then afterwards, the people from DC Comics came up and they said, hey, we would love to chat with you. So I talked to them and they were starting up this new line of young adults and middle grade graphic novels um, about their existing superhero characters. So like, what was a Catwoman like when she was a teenager? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they were inviting a lot of really, really well-respected young adult uh, creators to make graphic novels for them. So like they had Jean Lewin Yang and Rico Tanaki and they had Maggie Stiefvater and like just lots of people who write great books and some of them great graphics already. And those people were making books for this line of DC. 
So I, I talked to them about a couple different projects and they kept rejecting everything I suggested. And I thought, oh my gosh, I am not a good fit here. Mm. It's, it's fun to think about, you know, writing in this sandbox kind of playing in the superhero world, but I'm clearly just a terrible fit and I can't figure out what they want. And then they invited me to come out to LA. I was going to be in LA anyway, and go on a tour of the archives. And I already told you that I have a PhD in like book history and reading practices. And I spent a lot of time in rare book archives back in the day. And they took me into this comic book archive, which is like a treasure trove of amazing DC memorabilia. So I was just like, oh my God, Batman, Wonder Woman. Like these are characters that I have grown up knowing about. I read comic books as a kid a lot. They, these are characters that have meant things to people like all across the globe, right? Sure. These characters. And I just felt like very reinvigorated and excited. And then I went into the meeting thinking like, wow, this would be such an amazing thing to do, except for that I know I can't think of anything that they're ever going to like. Mm. And they said, would you like to invent a superhero? <laughs> and I was like, Yes, please. <laughs> so they didn't want me to, you know, find a, an angle on Catwoman or right. Batman or anything. They just gave me free reign to make up my own thing. And so then I suddenly was like, oh, yes, she's going to live in Gotham City. She's going to be Jewish. You know, my heritage is mostly Jewish. I'm sort of a little bit of a mix, but my spouse is Jewish. My dad is Jewish. I grew up very much thinking of myself, my identity in terms of my great-grandparents had come over from Poland and from Russia and been in the, in that New York City Jewish that shtetl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all about religion. It was all about... Well, the, know, ethnic- the ethnicity of it. It was about... And it was about creating a character that, to me, seemed very relatable to the, the teenagers that I knew, many of whom were very socially active and activist, and to a history of a neighborhood and kind of a local superhero. I like to tell that story because I think that a lot of people perhaps who listen to your podcast, who are maybe, um, I'm sure, you know, mature creators of all types listen to it as well. But, you know, people who are early in their careers often assume that somebody who's, you know, a mid-career like, like I am does not experience any rejection um, and that everything is just like happening all the time. Right. Whereas the actual situation is that, you know, yeah, I pitched them two pitches and, and you know, had given up on them before they actually, you know, came around to having an idea of what to do with me. Well, that was your first relationship with DC Comics, correct? Yes, that's the first time I've worked for them. Yeah. Do you think that there'll be other collaborations down the road? I would hope so. I would love to do a sequel to Whistle. Um, so we'll see how this book does and whether there's an, an audience for it. And I would do something else for them too. It's a really, really enjoyable thing to play with those DC Comics villains. I used uh, Poison Ivy and Killer Croc <laughs> and the Riddler in the comic that I wrote. But you know, there's a lot of juicy ones that I haven't got my hands on yet, like the Penguin and the Joker and uh, Catwoman. So I feel like there's um, there's just a lot to explore. It's a big, complicated world. 
that's larger than life. You know, it's so colorful. It's been a really fun, fun, fun ride. I think it must really, on some level, give you pause that regardless of where you are in your career or how old you are, that there's so many other roads that you can travel down. I've written a lot of young adult novels. And um, one thing that I did was I wrote comedies for the first, I would, I would classify maybe my first six or seven books as comedies. And, um, and then I wrote a thriller. And then I wrote another thriller and then I wrote another comedy and writing the thrillers was so invigorating because I think as a creative person, and I, I think this holds true for a lot of creative people that I know, when you feel like you definitely know how to do this job and you know, you're going to do it well, that is kind of when you're on that slippery slope of checking out. What do you mean by that? You mean phoning it in? Do you mean more yeah, like phoning, phoning it, it in? in. Yeah, mm-hmm. not, and not doing your best work. Mm-hmm. So to me, you know, the best situation is when I have gotten myself into a, a job or a contract where I think, oh, damn, <laughs> what did I say I would do? Yeah, what was I what thinking? What did I say I would do? Because now they're going to pay me and I signed a piece of paper and now I have to do this thing and I'm absolutely terrified because I don't know how to do it. And that was the situation I was in writing the superhero graphic. And it was also the situation I was in when I had contracted to do this thriller. Um, and I think, you know, that is very often when, when one grows the most as a, as a creator, right? It's not by doing the same thing that you're already good at. Right. But it's interesting. Does that surprise you that you still have those feelings of, um, again, my words, not yours, inadequacy, self-doubt. I would call it inadequacy and self-doubt, more just like, holy crap, what have I gotten myself into? Okay, uh-huh. But also as in, do I want to do this? Yeah, yeah. Then I think, oh, now I want to run away. I want to run away and go on vacation and watch television and not do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but I've, I, I put myself in a position where I have to because I signed a contract. I'm mostly writing on proposal. And I know that for some, some creative people, that is not a good, a good setup, right? For some creative people, they really like to work maybe without a deadline or maybe without expectations from whoever's going to receive and publish the work, or maybe sure. they like to just like follow their own they're not sure what direction a project will go. They don't want to like tell people ahead of time what it's going to be. And I respect that completely. But I think that for me, I like to get myself into that, oh crap situation where I then have to do it and I have to do it now. And then I see what, what I'll turn up when I'm going to put myself under that stress. So what, haven't you written about that you think or you're feeling you would like to? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I have a project that I'm doing that I wrote half of before I switched gears and I sort of put it in a drawer, which um, was all in verse. Huh. It's a verse novel. And I may end up taking it out of verse, but like 
some of it is just free verse and some of it is terrible verse at the present moment. <laughs> and some of it, but some of it is like, oh, I found, I was like, oh, this will be a Sistina or this will be a, I don't even know what, like I'd look up a poetic form on the internet and see if I could tell some of my story in that shape. So that was a kind of self-manufactured task. I was just, you know, I had some extra time because we were all in lockdown and I played with this new form um, to see if, you know, if the constraints of the new form were stimulating to my imagination. And mm-hmm. that turned out to be true. So I don't know that the actual book needs to be in verse. I don't know that anybody wants to read my poetry, but I do know that pushing myself to try a different something new type of novel, a different mm. shape of novel again, right. You know, not a thriller. It's not a graphic. It's this other thing that, um, you know, I really admire when I see it done well, there's some wonderful verse novelists out there, especially in young adult and, um, the stimulation of that new form, you know, that's something I would like to continue to try at least. Talk to me about your adult fiction. Oh my God. I haven't written anything for adults in this century. <laughs> but you, you <laughs> but you haven't forgotten us. Um, well, I have a lot of adult readers for We Were Liars in particular, and also for Disreputable History of Frankie Landau Banks, um, which is an older novel of mine. I, I know that there's a lot of adult readers of that, and probably of my novel Genuine Fraud, which is the other thriller. So uh, I haven't forgotten the adult reader, but I, like I said, I love that young adult community and I love the readers. And I think it's a very interesting time of life to write about. I think that the things that somebody who is a teenager goes through in terms of like, you know, physical changes and sexuality and emerging independence and separation from the family of origin and, you know, separation from the institutions that shape you when you're very young and maybe rejection of some of the values of those institutions. Like all of, there's so much change and so much transition that happens in this time of life. It is just really interesting to me. I don't expect that I'll get bored of that. Yeah, I think the dynamics also of the LGBTQ community there's just so much to mine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so much is being published in, you know, recent years, and hopefully there'll be even more by creators of all different identities, racial and ethnic and religious identities, but also gender and sexual identities that reflect the experience of growing up in those places. And those can be wonderful empathy machines meaning helping people understand people who are different from themselves, but also reflections of, you know, some people's own experience, but also some of them are just really good fun reads, you know, a great romance or a, you know, fantasy adventure and the representation is there, but it's not all about that. So it's a nice space to be a part of. Have you ever thought about your books translating to the big screen? Oh, the Hollywood journey has been a really like (laughs) rocky, weird journey. I'll just say that. Uh, It's not that I've never thought about it. I keep, I I keep taking money from people who haven't made anything yet. Mm -hmm. So um, thank you for the money. I feel very grateful for the money. (laughs) The money has been really, really lovely and it's helped put my kid into college. So there we go. Mm -hmm. Like if something happened, that would be a really fun adventure that I haven't got to go on yet. 
Oh, that's not true. Actually, I did have a movie. I did have a movie from a book that I co-wrote that was on the Disney Channel and is now on Disney Plus. Um, it's a series that I co-write called Upside Down Magic. That's under my name for younger kids, which is Emily Jenkins. And Disney made a movie out of it, and it was a really, really cute movie. And uh, yeah, well, that's no small potatoes. I mean, people can watch it on Disney Plus. I got to go to the the movie set, and uh, I didn't feel a lot of ownership over it, partly because I co-wrote the series. Right. So I felt like very loose and flexible about it all. And also it's Disney. So once Disney decides they're going to do something to your project, they're going to make it into a Disney project. Right. right? right. It's just like has the Disney. Imprint. I mean, it's really, yeah. yeah, it's a really charming movie, but it's just, it's, it's a Disney movie from top to bottom that mm-hmm. has, you know, took inspiration from something that I wrote, that I so co-wrote. <laughs> at the risk of making a lofty comment as we sort of wind down, assess for me, as you look over your career, what do you feel? What do you think? Are you oh, really impressed with Emily Lockhart? I don't need to be impressed. I think I'm trying to make nice things that, that are thoughtful and beautiful or and emotional and that I'm very lucky to have that job. You know, I think and you succeeded hard, but at doing that. Yeah. But I thought, I think I've also been very lucky in lots of ways. I've had various things that have made made getting going easier on me than it might be on some other people. And I, you know, I don't want to pretend that those things weren't there. Probably the biggest is that I married somebody whose family money made it so that we could have an apartment in New York City. (laughs) That's big. Is a giant factor in my writing career being successful. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that, you know, I had a decent place to live that was safe and comfortable and big enough for me to have children in and to stay right in New York City and and to work from and to work from. And that made it so that I could so that I I mean, I'm not saying I didn't work hard. I worked really hard, but all of that was like a giant marshmallow underneath me, like a giant cushion, right? Making it so that I could work hard without undue strife. And I could, I did have a place to live during the times when I was not earning good money at all. You know what I mean? And I, yep, I could yep. afford to pursue this dream um, because there was that, that cushion. So, you know, I don't want to go around saying I'm impressed with myself, like, but I feel very lucky to do the job that I do. And, um, and it's been a, a real delight to, to get to be a creative person. Um, I'm sure you feel that too, right? It's just like, well, I, you know, I, I think that, again, at the risk of defying my guests, because, I mean, there are things, yes, that I can do, and then there's plenty that I can't. And I just find it so interesting to hear how yous have gotten where you've gotten and what the means is to your ends. I think the only thing I would really add that I haven't said is that 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 rejection happens all the time, right? right? So like the Hollywood stuff, rejection all the time right? Going to pitch meetings, mean people, you know, duh. Uh, you know, books that I propose or I'm interested in writing, those get rejected all the time. Books come out and they get terrible reviews or nobody reads them. I think that the thickening of the skin or just the ability to like, just be like, oh, I got knocked down. I roll around and I stand up again. Like figuring out my own psychology such that I could role with that sort of thing. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's not that it never bums me out, but just that, that pick yourself up, dust yourself off, you know, start all over again. Mindset 
that was, I think the thing that like I had to figure out in the, in the therapy in my twenties, you know, like (laughs) how do you, if you're going to choose a profession where you're going to get knocked down often, right. And it doesn't feel safe all the time. And you're also putting your creative work out there and, you know, people might hate it. And it's kind of like walking around naked in front of everybody, right. Cause it's your, Mm -hmm. your emotions and Mm -hmm. your, your, your personal truths out there, figuring out, you know, sort of how to think about myself and my work and what particularly for me I needed to do to be able to to dust off and start again that was more important than like talent or opportunity or even though those other things might be important well i would have to imagine that a, num- a number one new york times bestseller and amazon's number one young adult novel of 2014 that's powerful well, thank you. But it's, you know, then you're still going home and like, you know, your stove's still greasy and your kids are still complaining and, you know, well, you can push them out of the room and, and you can you know, have somebody clean your stove. You know what I mean? And it can also <laughs> just be, I'm a number one New York Times bestseller. So leave me the hell alone or let me revel in this for a while. God damn it. Yeah, I suppose I could. I suppose I could. <laughs> well, but, you, know, you know, like the cats are not impressed. Well, screw the cats. But you know what I mean? Like it's your, your day is still your day. You're still I going know. to the grocery store. You still get a headache just like everybody else. It's like, it means you have readers. It's a nice thing to remember sometimes when you're having a sad day. But the real thing is just that I get to get up and go in my home office and make up stories. And I like doing that. And People are grateful that that's what you do. Emily Lockhart, I can't thank you enough for tolerating half of my inane questions, but it was so interesting to get to know you and hear all about how you do what you do. And um, please, anytime that you want to come back and fill us in on what's going on, I'll be happy to uh, have a follow-up conversation. Well, thank you, Sandy. It was really a pleasure. And yeah, thank you for helping Whistle go out in the world. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. 